This is Dr. B, and you're listening to Side Talk. Honored to have our special guest today, Dr. Marsha Levy Warren. She's a psychologist and psychoanalyst who works with kids and adults doing therapy and parent guidance and has written and spoken extensively on adolescence, culture, and development for over 30 years. She's also published a book that's very, been very influential in the field and I think one of the most important books on adolescence out there, published in 1996 called The Adolescent Journey, and then reissued in 2004, that really takes development on its face and looking at developmental tasks and challenges for each stage of development through adolescence. Um, and it's very honored to have her here. Welcome to the show, Dr. Levy Warren. Um, so you've been practicing for 30 years treating teenagers, is that right? 30 plus. <laughs> so let's go back 30 years. So we're talking like the 19, late 80s, early 90s, just to bring people into that time. I mean, the Macintosh is out, computers are just getting going. You dial up networking where you're waiting for like an hour to get online. Got Bill Clinton, Oklahoma City bombing. I mean, a lot, a lot of different stuff going on during that time. What was a teenager like in the early nineties? In the early, 90s. in the early nineties, what you, you, a fifteen-year-old comes to... into your office? Like, what are some of you know what what are they like back then as compared to now? Well, one very significant difference was that they weren't walking around with cell phones for the most part. They didn't come into their office with their phone clutched in their hand, texting. Right. No texting, no glancing down. That didn't mean they weren't fidgety, you know, and certainly there were kids that uh, could not sit in the office for too long and we'd go out and take a walk in the park and talk. But these days it's more that they are, you know, very tethered to their phones, which is a very different experience. But many of the issues were the same in terms of development, you know, issues, tensions between parents and and teenagers or, um, you know, tensions around how much autonomy they could have, how much they had to be in touch with their parents, curfews, things like that have remained stable. But one very significant difference is that kids are going through puberty much earlier now. Every 10 years, it's been dropping four to six months. So just in terms of bodily changes and the kinds of emotional issues that come up around growing up, they're coming into play much earlier than they used to be. So are you thinking like, are you saying like 10, 11, 12 year olds, 10 or 10, 11 year olds will start going through puberty around then? Well, it's, I would say it's different between boys and girls. You know, the boys are about a year and a half later than the girls, but the average age now for girls going through puberty is something between 11 and a half and 12 and two year standard deviation, which means that it's within the normal framework for a kid, a girl at nine or nine and a half to start going through puberty. So imagine the difference between being nine and being yeah. 13, going through the bodily changes. And then as soon as the girl goes through the changes, you know, and her body starts to change, every kid in the classroom sees that. Yeah. And it starts a ripple effect of, wow, we are not children anymore, but we're not really ready to be other than children either. So what effect does that have on a girl's emotional life? social life psychology when she's 11, 11 and a half and going through puberty at that age? Well, 11, 11 and a half these days is, believe it or not, pretty typical. It's, I think, 
for a lot of girls, it creates a lot of anxiety and a sense of not being ready and having to contend with issues about what it even means to be a girl and young woman when they're still feeling like children. But there are also issues about what it does even biologically that are important. You know, I think we're living in a world now that has tremendous amount of stimulation, maybe overstimulation for a lot of kids and parents for that matter. And, you know, when you go through puberty, your sensitivities are heightened. So there's a funny sort of collision of what's going on biologically and what's going on socially that brings into play issues about sexuality and gender and independence very at a very early age so your 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 capacity to think about those things and feel those things and behave in the world are all called into play even though you could be quite young and not quite ready for all of that. And once it starts happening among the girls, the boys become very tuned in too, even though biologically they may not be there yeah. at the same time. Certainly socially and psychologically, they are. So just to go back to social media and phones and you know how different that is from 30 years ago, what effect do you feel like that's had? Let's just go with phones to always be texting, to always be on social media, to have an Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, where you're constantly communicating with friends over social media. What, what effect has that had on just going through the world and on development for kids right now? And I know, you know, we're talking about a, a, you know, a wide age span here, but let's, you know, let's say like on a 12, 13 year old, since we're in that range mm -hmm. anyway, when we're talking about puberty. I think that it has affected the way that kids have a public self and a private self a mm. lot. You know, there's much more effort at crafting a public image. I mean, quite, quite consciously trying to appear to be a certain way in the way they communicate or the their Instagram or Tumblr, whatever it is, I mean, the, or Facebook, you know, there's a way that kids are thinking a lot about how they are seen, which is always an issue during right. adolescence, but it's very heightened by the fact that you can actually craft something about right. how you're seen. Because you're curating your image and mm -hmm. how you're presenting yourself to the world, which I guess dovetails with identity. Exactly. Identity development at that age. Mm -hmm, very much so. And all of that is happening simultaneously with trying to become a bit more autonomous in terms of your parents. So there's who you are at home and there's who you are outside your home and there's who you are outside your home in the public sphere and then who you are outside your home with your best friend. And all of these things, that's a lot for a, a, an 11, 12, 13-year-old to handle. Yeah. And it, those are issues that I think are true for teenagers throughout adolescence yeah. and even you know young adults. So a concern that sometimes I would imagine comes up for parents, and I know you work with parents closely and do a lot of parent work, parent guidance. Is, does it make children more externally oriented than they would be without phones? And I know it's hard to compare life without social media right now because it's such a part of our, the fabric of our lifestyle. But are you too, do you become too focused on how you present to the world now that we have social media and Instagram and Facebook and so on? Can you get too consumed with that? That it sort of, um, is a, a significant departure from just being more attuned to your own internal life or, more self-reflective? Have you noticed kind of kids straying even further away from that kind of self-reflection as a result of social media and phone life? 
Absolutely. I absolutely think that's one thing that is different between now and the, and the nineties, um, that it's, there's still a tremendous amount of self-reflection going on. It seems to be in some ways more private and more lonely. You know, there's much more of a kind of focus on presentation of self outside the inner life, you know, just how you are seen behaviorally. And one of the things that happened back in the earlier time in my practice was that there was much more, there was a big spike in the number of kids with eating disorders. And especially, I would say, especially young adolescent girls, um, but also late adolescent girls. And then shortly thereafter, in the 90s and early 2000s, there were a lot more eating disorders among boys. And that has to do in part with the crafting of the public yeah. image. And for boys also, there became a preoccupation with bodybuilding that wasn't so true 30 years ago, but is certainly true now. And it dovetails with our a whole social preoccupation with how we're seen and um, the rise in the number of people who are getting cosmetic surgery, adults. The idea that you can form an image of who you want to be physiologically and then become that just if you work hard enough at it or you're willing to have surgery or Botox or spend a lot of time in the gym. That whole idea is yeah. – is, it started back then, but it's really blossomed into something very different right now. Yeah. So we just get sort of caught up with our image and how we come across and how we look to other people even more so now, maybe. Mm -hmm. So what do you say to parents? I know this is probably like a typical issue that comes up where a parent is talking to you about how their kid is always on the phone, their kid is always playing video games. And yet to the kid, it's their life. It's their lifeline. I mean, they can't imagine living without their phone for a day. What do you say to parents who feel like their kids are spending too much time on the phone or in a video game and they're, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old and they want them reading or spending more time with their homework? Should I regulate it? Should I, you know, take it away? Should I limit it? How do you help parents negotiate that landscape? where it can cause so much friction and tension with their kid? Well, I, I have to tell you, that's the question. <laughs> there isn't a single school presentation that I've done in the last 30 years yeah. where that question hasn't come yeah. up in one in one way or another. Yeah. And, How do you help parents just well, deal with I that? I have to say, let's start with the with, – uh, oh. <laughs> Someone's oh. calling you right now. I know. Um it's it's after it's apropos. I mean, it's, I of our conversation, it's, it's our phone, it right? Perfect? The phone Isn't is always there. Yeah, exactly. And here I thought I turned it off. <laughs> anyway, um, the very first question I ask parents is, well, let's start with you. How much time are you spending on your phone in front of your kids? Right. You know, how able are you to put your phone down and just be present for your spouse, for your kids, you know, even for your friends and. You know, the same thing comes up around, you know, the use of cannabis. Like, how do you regulate yourself, you as a parent, with drinking and maybe even cannabis um, or taking medication for this, that, or the other thing? How what What is it that your kids have seen growing up? What's the model that you've presented to them? So I kind of want to start with that. Yeah. And then I try to say, and how do you as a family try to counterbalance the preoccupation with social media, phones, all of that? Like, how I mean, much what time... else do they bring into yes. the family and introduce to the kid? Yes, uh -huh. exactly. The, 
there's a, there's no question that social media and video games are here to stay, and it is part of the currency of social life for kids growing up. I mean, I'd say especially boys, there's a lot of activity with, you know, gaming and video uh, games um, that really is is a connection among among boys. Um, girls too, but boys a little bit more on the game front. So what I say to families is, well, how much time do you spend doing things that stimulate your kids and your brain in a different way? How much time do you spend outdoors just walking around? How much time do you spend in the country just giving kids a chance to walk through the woods and find their way? Because the brain develops in accordance with what it's been stimulated by. And this preoccupation with with devices is actually creating a net effect of a lot of kids having problems with organization and executive functioning and regu- self-regulation. Is that why you see it as such a, as such a bigger problem these days, executive functioning and organization? Absolutely. As well as just our knowledge and understanding of it, but mm-hmm. social media and phones have a lot to do with that. Well, it has to do with what kids are introduced yeah. to and at what age and what parts of their brain develop in response to that. And I'm not, I'm, I'm not somebody that says, oh, this is a bad thing. Right. I, I don't feel that way at all. What I feel is, like with everything else, you have to counterbalance it. And if you want your kids to be able to do things like find their way in the woods and be comfortable without a device in their hands and, and be able to sit alone and read a book, then they have to see what that looks like and feels like. And the first and most important people they see that with is their parents. So that's interesting because you're really making parents aware of their own participation in this and the Mm -hmm. environment that they create. Mm -hmm. And what are they introducing or not introducing to the kid, Mm -hmm. including their own relationship to devices? Yeah, I remember as as a graduate student actually going to visit a couple, older couple. the, The wife was one of my mentors in graduate school. And we went up to visit them in their lake house in New Hampshire. And we get up there and four o'clock rolls around, four thirty, five o'clock. And Helen calls me and, and, um, calls me in and says, okay, um, now's our reading hour. <laughs> and I laughed like you did. I said, what? You must have been a little it wasn't confused. cocktail hour. It was reading hour. And they had a tradition huh. of sitting around in their country home, which they had had with their kids, our age, actually. Um, and she, her husband was a, a classics professor and she was a psychology professor. And their kids grew up having this hour between 4.30 and 5.30, which a lot of people would call cocktail hour, right. you know, especially when you're out in the country. But their, their, tradition was to have a reading hour. And I thought, you know, that's brilliant. Right. And how many parents have reading and, hours yes, these days, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Where you put and, some, your devices down and you just sit as a family around mm-hmm. reading. You know, the other the other example of this that I really appreciate is, you know, among observant Jews, they have a Shabbat, a, right. a Sabbath. For 24 hours, they don't have any devices. Yeah. And in those families, when I've talked to the kids about what that's like, they actually say it's a relief. You know, they, they see that they anxious, they're anxious about it to some degree, but they also find that it's a really relaxing time. They're not worried about what their friends are doing. They're not busy, you know, checking every single, you know, text or email the way they normally would. And they often are doing something like reading, playing a musical instrument or something that puts them in a different psychic space, which they love. 
So I often recommend even to people who are not of, you know, of, of the Jewish faith, you know, have your own Sabbath. Yeah. See, see how that goes in the family because people talk to each other or they do things that they wouldn't necessarily do otherwise. Yeah. So I want to go back to something you said earlier about cannabis. And mm-hmm. I know maybe that's the formal term. I mean, there's a lot of terms these days, cannabis, weed, pot. How, and just in your experience, how extensive is cannabis use these days and the ease with which you can do it through these pens and vapes and the, the way they're kind of stylized, the way it looks, the way that it seems to be much more prevalent. How... What are you seeing with teenagers and what are some of the challenges that parents are having in just managing their kids' use of it these days as, you know, as compared to, you know, maybe 20 years ago or 10 years ago? Well, it's far more extensive now. It's far more available. I would Uh say that, um, there are differences between the city and the country Uh and uh, between New York City and other parts of the country. Uh, certainly in New York City, kids are, it's it's readily available for kids at even a very young age and it's almost a rite of passage for kids to have some experience of what it's like to you know to vape or to to smoke or whatever um in terms of cannabis and you know they this is one of the issues that i think sometimes highlights the tensions between the generations because often parents are had their own exposure, but it was a long time ago, and it was a different kind of environment in which in which it was exposed. They were exposed to it, and um, you know their beliefs about it feel to the kids to be very outdated. You know, so there's there's that, and then there's the just the whole legalization of marijuana that's been going on, you know, domestically for years now. The idea that it's sort of no big deal. Now, the truth is that especially for a developing brain, it's a bigger deal than it is for people who are older in some ways. How do you convey that to a teenager who's, in the, you know, kind of that may not see a problem with it, may be very resistant to understanding the detrimental, longer term detrimental effects of it, may be really reliant on it, maybe not using it seven days a week, but four or five days a week. What's the big deal? Um, how do you work with a teenager? in trying to, you know, help them wrap their mind around some of the negative effects of what they're doing. It very much depends upon the kid and the kind of usage. It was interesting the way you asked that question because there are kids that do rely on it because they're anxious. They rely on it because they're particularly socially anxious. They rely on it because they feel somewhat marginal among their friends and peers and they feel like this is a way that they can be like other kids at an, at an age when some people want nothing more than to be just normal, like other kids. And that's what seems normal, normative, typical. When I'm talking to somebody for whom it feels like something they are relying on because they can't do without it, um, then I try to talk to them about, you know, what they're relying on it for and whether that's really the best way. And I do give articles and things to kids to read. I say, look, you know, there are effects on your brain. It does, you know, extensive use of cannabis can actually impact short-term memory. 
um, can make you fuzzier in your thinking. So like make, presenting them the facts, the like facts. these are the medical facts. These are the medical facts. Right. This is where you are in terms of brain development. Yeah. And, you know, I can talk to you about it, but here, read it yourself. And then let's talk about it and, and really talk about whether this is something that you can give up, you know, you can control it, or yeah. whether at this point it has some kind of control over you. You know, whether you're really choosing this at this point or it's something that you can't do without. That's a very significant factor for me. That, that That's different for me, at least, when a kid really has some control over it and when they don't. So and, if they do have some control, you want to give them the knowledge and education about what the facts are, what what it is, and help them and help empower them in making a more kind of informed choice. Absolutely. Informed choice is very, is very important right. to me. And, you know, then there's, well, what happens when the parents come in and say, my kid is, you know, smoking weed all the time and I can't get him to stop or I can't get her to stop. And, you know, it really drives me crazy and, you know, that kind of thing. That's when I get into the conversation about, okay, so what's the family system like? What goes on in your home? And are there ways in which you, you yourselves are not regulating in the use of substances as including maybe like alcohol or something, right? The parents may, you know, dismiss or minimize. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, most recently I remember uh, some parents coming in and saying, you know, I can't stand the fact that every time my kid comes home, you know, he vapes. And, um, I said, comes home from, from where? Oh, comes home from school. And what does he say about why he does it? Well, he says that he, it really helps him relax and sort of get ready to do his homework and everything else. And I said, well, does he do his homework? Yeah, he does his homework. How, and how's he doing in school? Oh, he's doing really well. And what's he like when he smokes? Oh, he's just sort of chill. He's just sort of hanging around and, you know, watching something on TV for a while. And, um, and then he seems to get going. And I said, well, what happens when you guys get home from work? Silence. Hmm. And then pause. And then, well, you know, we have a glass of wine. Oh, silence. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, the the message being, you know, if you're going to start to take issue with your kid about something yeah. that you yourself are doing, even in another form, you know, let's let's try to really talk yeah. this one through. And they get it. Well, it's and kind of like they, what you were saying about devices. Like, let, let's mm-hmm. look at your behavior, right? Mm-hmm. And how that's affecting or what the child or what message are you sending to the kid? Exactly. Yeah. And are you willing to try to deal with your own propensity to use the device or have the drink or whatever it is? And if you are, then you can have a very different kind of conversation with your kid. But if you are going to do what you do and then tell your kid that he or she should not do what they're doing, it's not going to work because it's going to seem very hypocritical. So I want to just shift gears um, for a moment and ask you something a little more personal, but just like you've been treating teenagers for a long time. You know, what is it that really draws you to adolescents, to teenagers? Oh, I love the energy and the creativity <laughs> and the way they confront you and themselves, their willingness to be really open and truthful if they feel like they can trust the situation that they're in with you. Um, I love that they're ever-changing. I mean, I, I've worked with adults my entire professional life as well, and I love that work too. But 
the thing that's really interesting about teenagers is that they can change from week to week. Right, or day to day. <laughs> day to day, hour to hour. Yeah. And it's for real. Yeah. It's not just, you know, in the moment. And one of the problems that occurs between parents and teenagers is that teenagers really can change. They can go away for summer and come back yeah. and feel wholly different. And the parents can't adjust as quickly as the kids can. Adults have a much longer view. Different experience of time. Yeah, very different experience of time. And that's one of the things I love. But also there, you know, think about yourself. When you were a teenager, you were probably doing so many different things. And, you know, they're playing an instrument, they're playing a sport, they're doing stuff in school, they're hanging out with their friends and going to movies, or they're playing games, you know, video games, or whatever they're doing. They're writing poetry, they're, they're, you know, painting. They're doing many, many different kinds of creative activities. And it's very exciting. And it's a way that they inform themselves about who they are and what they care about. And then the hard part comes when they have to start making choices and limiting themselves. They have to give things up. Is there anything from your own adolescence that you kind of, that comes up a lot in working with teenagers or like a memory or just a time that you went through that's been very helpful in connecting or working with adolescents? Many. I think, I think working with adolescents brings you very much in touch with uh -huh. your own. So it's always there life. alongside always of there. the work. Always there. You're revisiting certain periods of time or what you went through as a kid. Sure. Uh -huh. Lots of memories and lots of, you know, experiences of, you know, um, involvement with parents and teachers and coaches and advisors. You know, there are many, many memories and they do come into play a lot in working with kids. And sometimes I talk about them. Uh -huh. Is there any one in particular that, you know, came up recently or that was very influential or impactful that you tend to draw on with kids? I wouldn't say there's one in any general sense. I would say that they, that things come up in relation to an individual relationship with a, with an adolescent. Uh -huh. um, the one that just popped into my head when you asked the question was, when I was a kid, I was the editor of my high school newspaper and the journalism class that I was required to take before taking that position was probably one of the most important classes I've ever taken in my life. That's where I learned grammar for the first time. <laughs> and I'm not kidding. Uh -huh. I never had learned grammar. I didn't know very much about it at all, except from my Latin class or, something, uh -huh. <laughs> or from taking French. But, you know, in English, I didn't learn grammar in editing the way I did in that journalism class. And it's it's literally helped me my entire huh. life as a writer. Sounds like you have a vivid memory of it. I mean, it's, I it's right there. Mm -hmm. I do. Yeah. I can practically name the kids in the class. Uh -huh. It was a long time ago. <laughs> but that particular teacher who was very tough, you know, people didn't necessarily like him, but they admired him. He was clear. He was uh, He was full of information. He was very strict. And, you know, it really meant something if you could do well in that class. Mm -hmm. So I, I remember that. And so when sometimes kids will talk about some teacher they have in school that they think is a real, you know, tough teacher, very strict and, and all of that, I sometimes will talk about this guy and that mm -hmm. experience and how it stayed with me even at, you know, at this mm -hmm. age. I guess you're also talking about how teenagers are so influenced by older adults, parental figures, mentors, coaches, teachers at that age. I mean, Absolutely. it's so important. Well, it's part of the whole separation process that's going on, you know, as you're moving away from having your home base, your family of origin being the main source of influence, which is the transition from childhood into adolescence into adulthood involves a kind of 
I don't know, diminution in the power and influence of the parents. And not complete, of course, but there's a moving out. And in that moving out, there's often a focus on other adults. And there's a comparison between, you know, who your parents are and who the parents of your friends are, or teachers or coaches or whatever, mentors. So non-parent adults really become far more significant during adolescence than they had been in childhood. And I guess it reshapes your perception of your parents, right, in a helpful way in terms of Mm -hmm. having that relationship evolve as you grow older. We hope what happens is that the parents are seen more realistically. They're neither idealized, you know, nor diminished, but just seen as real people who, you know, who we hope love their kids and have done the best they could to parent them, um, but have their own foibles, of course. And, you know, we really hope that in that transition and comparisons that are made with other adults and everything else, that as the teenager becomes an adult himself or herself, that they can re-embrace the parents as as human beings in a different way. And that is usually what happens. Uh, Usually there's periods of difficulty or tension somewhere along the line, but where I some of the disappointments that kids may have with their parents emerge. But usually those are put behind when there's some ownership of it on the part of the parents and some continuing sense of love and trust in the family. And I guess as a parent, you have to be able to weather not being idealized anymore and having some of your flaws and foibles exposed. Absolutely. And called out (laughs) by your kid. Yes, exactly, exactly right. And we hope even with some admiration that the kid is able to see you Uh in, in all your, with all your wrinkles. Uh So I have a a last question I want to get into a little bit, which is, um, something that comes up a lot, which is, do you feel like teenagers are under more pressure these days? But, you know, we're in New York City, we're in Manhattan, you know, there's, I don't want to make too many generalizations, but it's hard not to when we're having this kind of conversation. But are teenagers under more pressure given the day and age that we're living in as compared to 20, 30 years ago? Or might you be saying that same thing back then too, that teenagers were under a lot of pressure then? Or has the world changed in such a way that there is just more anxiety, more tension that these teenagers are living with around them and inside of them as a result of just some of the changes in the world and the culture? I would say, yes, there is more pressure. I would also say there's always been pressure. I mean, in the, the 80s and the, and the 90s, people might have been concerned, more concerned with, um, you know, getting sick from having sex, mm-hmm, that mm-hmm, kind of thing, mm-hmm. or um, something about, oh, I don't know, um, not being able to get into the kind of college they wanted to get into. Mm-hmm. I mean, those things are still present. I mean, when after 9-11, for example, when kids were really worried about their very existence or in terms of climate change now, a lot of kids are extremely anxious about what's, what is the world going to look like? What about when they actually have kids themselves? Are their kids going to be safe? Is there going to, you know, is the, are the temperatures going to be so crazy that you can't even go outside of your home? They are worried about a kind of wholesale destructiveness in the world um, that I think is greater, a greater worry than was true back then. Um, the everyday concerns that were true back then are also true about, you know, can I get into a good school? Can I find myself a, something to do professionally, work-wise, that is going to be satisfying? The whole problem of there being so few 
jobs for kids coming out of college and, and being so difficult for them to support themselves is something that even teenagers are worried about. And the number of families in which, you know, we had, a, we had two empty nesters who suddenly find that their kids are coming back and living with them after college. That's been one of the That's not so unusual. I mean, that's fairly common these days. It's extremely common and it's extremely common in New York because if those kids want to come back into the city, it's almost impossible to find work that can support a place to live And right now in New York if you're a 22-year-old. So there's a lot more, you know, sort of in and out of the family and families needing to support their kids for longer than was true back in the 90s. Hi, well, I want to thank you for joining us. This has been really a great conversation and I uh, really appreciate you taking the time. No, it's and a pleasure to be here. 